This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup. He started to ask me about something dealing with Georgia and preserving something potentially for appeal. I said to him, are you out of your effing mind? Right? I said, I said, I only want to hear two words coming out of your mouth from now on. Orderly transition. And I screamed and said, I don't want to hear any other effing words coming out of your mouth, no matter what, other than orderly transition. Repeat those words to me. And I screamed and eventually he said, orderly transition. I said, good, John. Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great effing criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. That was former White House lawyer Eric Hirschman testifying about a phone call between himself and former Trump attorney John Eastman. We learned a lot more about Eastman and about the pressure campaign on Mike Pence during the third hearing of the January 6th committee on Thursday. There were a lot of revelations, so let's jump right in with us, Cheryl Gay Stolberg, a Washington correspondent covering health policy at The New York Times. Cheryl, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back, Jeb. Also with us is Molly Ball, a national political correspondent with Time. Molly, welcome. Thanks for having me. And Chris Saliza, a reporter and editor-at-large for CNN Politics. Chris, always great to have you. Hi, Jen. So as we said, Thursday's hearing was all about Mike Pence. Chris, tell us about the evidence that was presented yesterday. What more did we learn? Yeah, so, I, I mean, we knew that Donald Trump had engaged in a pressure campaign on Mike Pence, both publicly and privately, Um, In the days and weeks leading up to January 6th, his goal was to get Mike Pence to overturn the uh, Electoral College results uh, that showed Joe Biden winning 306 electoral votes and Donald Trump winning 232 electoral votes. I think what we got Thursday, Jen, was more meat on that bone. We heard from Craig Jacob, uh, Mike Pence's general counsel, who was with Pence that day. We heard from Mark Short, uh, Pence's chief of staff, uh, who was with him that day. Um, and really, I think, got a sense of just how much Donald Trump did to inflame a situation that was already pretty inflamed. So I think the two big takeaways are from Thursday as it regards Mike Pence. Number one, Pence was unequivocal in his serious doubts about this argument Donald Trump and his lawyer John Eastman were making that the election could in fact be overturned by the vice president of the United States during the counting of the electoral college votes. That Pence had sort of didn't have the legal understanding at the start of all this, but once he obtained that, it, it it comported with his initial instinct, which was it would seem very odd that a single person could overturn the election. That was piece one. Piece two, takeaway two, I think is just how close Mike Pence came to being in real physical danger on January the 6th. Uh, Pete Aguilar, a California congressman who was sort of in charge of this piece of making the case, laid out that Pence was only at one point 40 feet from rioters as uh, they he was uh, sort of brought out of the Senate chamber and into a secure location. And I'll remind people, just in case they've forgotten, this was a crowd that as they were entering 
the the uh, Capitol building unlawfully were chanting, hang Mike Pence, at least some of them were. And there was a gallows set up on the west front of the U.S. Capitol. Um, You know, I I don't think we should lose sight of that. Uh, This is someone who had been a loyal lieutenant of Donald Trump for four years, and Donald Trump turned on him and inflamed what was already a pretty bad situation. And and as we learned on Thursday, it could have gotten a lot worse for Mike Pence. Well, Pence wasn't present at the hearing, but his former attorney, Greg Jacob, was. As the committee already played the vice president's remarks, there is almost no idea more un-American than the notion that any one person would choose the American president. And then unbroken historical practice for 230 years that the vice president did not have such an authority. Molly, do we know if Mike Pence will appear at these hearings or if the committee has asked him to appear? Uh, From what I understand, he has been asked and he has declined uh, to appear. But we have heard, uh, as Chris said, very powerfully from many of Pence's staff and advisors and uh, some other uh, information released by the committee. We saw for the first time some new uh, photos of the vice president as he was in his a secure location, his undisclosed location, watching what was unfolding at the Capitol. We heard testimony about uh, the urgency of the situation, the danger he was thought to be in, the uh, the concern uh, that his security detail had for him. Uh, so I think, you know, whether or not we hear personally from Pence, a really powerful picture was painted of how central he was to this particular uh, phase of of the plot and and for me at least it was it was just a very visceral uh, reminder of, of how frightening uh, it was to 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 be in the center of it. Well, we've been hearing from lots of you, and you're curious about what the hearings will amount to. Eileen in San Diego gave us her thoughts. This is Eileen in San Diego. I hope the hearings on the January sixth riot do result in criminal convictions for those from the top down. No one is above the law. President Trump is not above the law. This is our opportunity to show the country that we do not let wealthy, rich people like President Trump off the hook. Now, there's been some confusion about how these hearings will or won't lead to the Justice Department pursuing criminal charges. But Cheryl, what could happen here? Well, what could happen is that the Justice Department could pursue criminal charges. And I think it's important to note at Thursday's hearing, Trump's lawyer, John Eastman, was really in the hot seat. And a lot of the hearing revolved around Eastman's plan, his theory, a dubious legal theory, that Vice President Mike Pence could either delay certification of the election by sending the whole issue back to the states or simply declare President Trump the winner himself. And we know from testimony from the vice president's uh, lawyer, Greg Jacob, that this lawyer, John Eastman, admitted in the president's presence that the plan to pressure Pence to declare the election for Trump violated an 1887 law, the Electoral Count Act. So if prosecutors can, and, and also that Eastman basically conveyed that message to Trump. So if prosecutors can prove that both President Trump and Eastman were aware in advance that this scheme to pressure Pence could would violate the law, 
then that is a critical piece of evidence suggesting intent that the Justice Department could use. And we know that the Justice Department has, in fact, asked the January 6th committee for all of its records, for all of its depositions, for for everything. And uh, I saw Adam Schiff, member of the committee, saying this morning that the committee was actually wrestling with the breadth of that request and would comply as best it could in turning over the evidence it had gathered for possible prosecution. Um, And ultimately, the Justice Department will make a decision as to whether it has evidence to pursue a criminal prosecution of the former president. Well, Thursday's hearing was one of two held this week. The hearing on Monday focused on the former president's efforts to spread the big lie in the days leading up to January 6th. We had a whole show about it earlier this week, and you can check that out at our website, theone.org. Now, on Wednesday, the January 6th House Committee said GOP Representative Barry Loudermilk of Georgia was giving tours of the Capitol complex the day before the attack. The committee released footage backing up that claim. Briefly, Chris, what does the footage appear to show? Yeah, so th- this has been something that's been kicking around almost since uh, uh, January 7th, let's call it. This idea that possibly there were Republican members of Congress who aided and abetted the uh, uh, the rioters who, who helped them either get in or understand where they could go. So Barry Loudermilk, uh, a Congress, Republican congressman from Georgia, has sort of become the focal point. Uh, the allegation is that Loudermilk gave a tour of the Capitol to about 10 people on January the 5th, that there was a man on this tour who was taking pictures of hallways of tunnels of entrances far be it for me to judge what you should take pictures of but people would conclude these are not usually what people take pictures of in the capitol they take pictures of the rotunda which is gorgeous they take pictures of the senator's house but they don't usually take pictures of some tunnels and hallways that same man was spotted the next day during the january 6th riot now The U.S. Capitol Police has put out a finding and a letter to Loudermilk and other Republican members that says they don't have any evidence. They've reviewed that 1-5 visit, the January 5th visit. They didn't find anything suspicious or what looked like reconnaissance. Loudermilk has said what the January 6th committee is doing is undermining the Capitol Police. But the January 6th committee did release footage that shows this guy during a tour taking those pictures. They've interviewed the man, but they haven't given us his identity yet. We got this tweet from Nine Hill who says, 50 years ago today was the Watergate break-in, and this is an anniversary of that. 50 years ago today, security guard Frank Wills was patrolling the Watergate office complex when he noticed security tape on a stairwell door. His phone call to the police would eventually lead to a Washington Post investigation, congressional hearings, and the resignation of former President Richard Nixon. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. We'll be back with more after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Ongoing struggles in any of life's roles can lead to fatigue and feeling helpless. Prioritize yourself by talking with someone. 
BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist. Be matched with your therapist within 48 hours and get 10% off your first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com slash 1A. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. I want to get to this question we got from Jan, who asks, is the Department of Justice fighting with the Select Committee? And as we alluded to, the Washington Post reported yesterday that prosecutors argue a lack of access to committee evidence could delay a conspiracy trial. Briefly, Chris, break down what's happening here. Yeah, there's an issue of sort of sharing of information. The Select Committee has conducted more than a thousand interviews. Obviously, that is a massive wealth of information about what happened, not just on January 6th, but in the days and weeks leading up to it. Uh, The Justice Department wants access to all of that. I think the uh, Select Committee is struggling with that. I think it's part of a broader debate within the committee that we did see play out this week over this issue of should the committee recommend criminal conspiracy charges to the Department of Justice at the end of this? Now, it's important to note that Cheryl's exactly right here. It's it's ultimately up to the Department of Justice. The, the select committee does not have any power to charge anyone with anything. I think it's really important that we, 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 rec- we notice, we recognize that. Benny Thompson, the chair of the committee, said this week, I wrote this down because it, I, I thought the quote was very telling. He said, if the Department of Justice looks at it and assume that there's something that needs for the review, I'm sure they'll do it. Now, immediately after Benny Thompson said that, Liz Cheney, the vice chair of the committee, one of the two Republicans on the committee, came out and said, well, we haven't reached any conclusions on whether we're going to recommend criminal conspiracy or not. Now, in some ways, this is a hypothetical debate because, again, whether they recommend criminal conspiracy or not, it doesn't bind the Department of Justice. But it does speak to the committee trying to walk a very fine line between adhering to what they have found and what what they have found tells them about what happened that day and who should be charged, if anyone, and not appearing too political. I think Benny Thompson, the chair, is very conscious of not appearing too political and is concerned that if they recommend criminal conspiracy charges, they might do so. So I think there's a real split there. And I think that's affecting how the committee interacts with the Department of Justice. Well, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas says she, quote, can't wait to talk to the January 6th committee. Jenny Thomas was summoned to testify just a few hours after the Washington Post reported she'd been emailing with former Trump attorney John Eastman in the weeks before the insurrection. Molly, tell us more about these emails and why is it a big deal that Eastman is the one she was talking to? Well, as we've discussed, Eastman was a focus of uh, the Thursday hearing and has been a focus of a large part of the investigation into uh, the plot to overturn the election because, as as we've heard, uh, Trump had uh, a lot of options for legal advice, but he rebuffed all of the sane ones and was left with only the sort of, you know, the fringier and and more outlandish uh, advisors who were willing to tell him what he wanted to hear, which was uh, not true, but which was that he did, you know, still have this ability to try to uh, stay in power despite having lost the election. So, you know, Eastman was very much at the center. He spoke at the rally on January 6th. He was 
uh, we've heard, you know, in the hearing about all of the behind the scenes tussling between the lawyers telling the other lawyers telling Eastman what you're doing here is not legitimate. The, you know, we can't support this and him, you know, persisting in this even as uh, the riot was happening. So now we learn from these emails uh, that he was in contact with Ginny Thomas, who, of course, has been the focus of controversy in many ways. Um, for her uh, behind-the-scenes activities, her involvement with January 6th, and her uh, relationship with uh, the Supreme Court. And there is also now, uh, the New York Times reported, uh, that that, uh, another uh, Trump lawyer made reference to uh, a fight among the justices over these election lawsuits. You remember Trump very much thought that the Supreme Court was going to help him overturn the election, that in part because of his appointment of two of the Supreme Court justices, that he would be able to go to the court and that they would somehow give him some sort of dispensation in these dozens, some, any of these dozens of lawsuits that, that, had, that he had been bringing uh, based on the election. And so this is, this is obviously uh, very suspicious. Uh, there's, you know, Ginny, Ginny Thomas has, has denied, I believe, that, or, or John Eastman has denied uh, that, that there's any there there. But I think there's a lot of people who are very curious uh, about where exactly this information was coming from and why it was why someone believed that there was inside information from the Supreme Court. Well, we'll have to wait to hear her impending testimony. But Cheryl, as Molly alluded to there, this is part of a broader pattern with Jenny Thomas. And how do you think this reflects on Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and the public perception of the court? I think this has been very problematic for Justice Thomas um, and for the public perception of the court and the court's independence. Um, Clearly, you know, justices are are allowed to have spouses and their spouses are allowed to engage in whatever business they engage in. But this comes very, very close. Um, And Ginny and Clarence Thomas have maintained that they kind of keep separate lanes and there's no pillow talk and they don't discuss these matters. But, you know, in January, when the Supreme Court rejected a request by President Trump to block the release of his records to the January 6th committee, uh, the vote was eight to one. And Clarence Thomas was the only justice to side with President Trump. A lot of uh, legal experts and certainly Democrats have said that Clarence Thomas, Justice Thomas, needs to recuse himself from any matters relating to January 6th or the election that come before the Supreme Court. So far, Justice Thomas hasn't done so. And, you know, at a time when public confidence is really shaky, I think in in all institutions of government and in the independence of the court, um, I think that this these connections, these repeated revelations about who Jenny Thomas was emailing, not only John Eastman, but Mark Meadows and others uh, in Trump's inner circle, these revelations um, do raise questions of of a possible conflict of interest for the justice. Chris, what's next for the January 6th hearings? Well, we expect, I believe they've announced that they're doing seven or eight hearings in June. I think this is very much modeled on the, the Watergate hearings, Jen, an uh, attempt to lay out piece by piece what they've learned. And, and, and although I don't know they would put it this way, it seems to me the case against Donald Trump. Now, again, you know, criminal conspiracy or not, we can debate that back and forth and we could, (laughs) I'm sure you could have a whole show or many shows on just that question. But 
I think what you're seeing, Liz Cheney has laid it out. She has said there's a seven-point plan that Donald Trump pursued to try to overturn this election. So we've seen so far, you mentioned earlier this week, Bill Barr, the former attorney general, was sort of the star witness um, of the second hearing, essentially saying that he had told Donald Trump repeatedly that these allegations of voter fraud were I'm not going to quote him because this is a family show, but we're not credible. Um, And that Donald Trump persisted in that. And as Molly mentioned, sort of went lawyer shopping until he could find a lawyer who um, would back up what he wanted to believe, which was that the election was stolen. So I think we'll continue to see uh, more. We we obviously we're, we're to January 6th. Uh, in the hearings, we're three hearings and we're two January 6th. We've seen a lot of what happened on that day. I think we'll hear more uh, testimony from Barr. I think he's going to wind up being sort of a star witness here. He was obviously close to this. He's incredibly candid at this point because he has not much else to lose. So uh, we'll have four more hearings throughout the month of June. believe there will be one more hearing in primetime. People will recall that the first hearing last Thursday was a primetime hearing. Not all seven will be, but I believe there'll be one more. Um, And, you know, I think this really is the making of the case against Donald Trump. Yes, John, and against John Eastman. Yes. uh, And against some of these other people who are close to uh, Donald Trump. But really, this is about Donald Trump, what he knew, when he knew, uh, and when he knew it. I just wanted to take a quick note because I was so struck by this. There was a recounting of a phone call between Donald Trump and Mike Pence on the morning of January the 6th. Now, we knew this phone call occurred, but uh, from several people who were in the room, uh, Donald Trump uh, called Mike Pence a wimp. He called, and I'm quoting here, I apologize for voters, uh, for voters, for listeners. uh, He called Mike Pence the P word, according to Ivanka Trump's chief of staff, who was in and out of the room. Uh, This was a real bullying effort. He said he wouldn't be friends with Mike Pence anymore. I I mean, this is the the stuff that if my nine-year-old did it, I would say that's not how we behave. Uh, That the president of the United States was doing it is bad enough. That he was doing it in relation to the overturning of a presidential election is, to me, just absolutely stunning. Even though, as I said, we knew that this phone call had occurred, the nature and tenor of the call, uh, you know, it j- just speaks to Donald Trump's mind state. Well, let's turn now to the primaries. Tuesday was another big day with races in Nevada, South Carolina, Maine, North Dakota, and a special election in Texas. And let's zoom in on South Carolina. Here's State Representative Russell Fry speaking to supporters after his projected primary win over incumbent Republican Tom Rice. Today, the conservatives in the Republican Party won. Today... Donald Trump won, and today the voters of the 7th Congressional District won. So Molly, what do the races in South Carolina tell us about where the GOP is right now, at least in certain parts of the country? Yeah, it was actually a very sort of nice little uh, dichotomy of two separate congressional races in South Carolina pretty similar districts in terms of their general political orientation and two representatives both uh, on the outs with Donald Trump, but for sort of different reasons. And it sort of gave a very nice, clean illustration of sort of exactly where we can see the red line seems to be drawn 
for uh, Republican-based, Republican primary voters these days. You had, on the one hand, uh, Congressman Tom Rice, Republican uh, from the 7th District, who surprised, I think, most people. It wasn't previously known as any kind of, of critic and, in fact, had not uh, voted to certify the election. Uh, but he came out and voted to impeach Trump after January 6th. Uh, on the other hand, uh, down in the, the Charleston area, uh, Nancy Mace has occasionally been critical of Trump, uh, but she did not vote for his impeachment. And what we saw was uh, Rice was soundly defeated uh, and Mace was able to hang on. So as we, you know, we're all keeping the scorecard of how Donald Trump's uh, endorsement is factoring into these Republican primaries and what the sort of loyalty test, the litmus test for uh, for Republican uh, elected officials is with him. And so I think what you see here is that, uh, you know, Repu Republican voters will tolerate someone who's a little bit independent of the former president, uh, but not someone who actually goes up against him. And, and, um, and, and, I, and I think also for Trump, you know, we know that the impeachment vote is especially important to him. And this is the first time that uh, one of the impeachment, Republican impeachment voters has faced the primary electorate. Uh, but there will be more of these. We've got uh, two members up in, in Washington state, uh, Peter Meyer in Michigan. And quite notably, I think everyone will be watching uh, Liz Cheney in Wyoming. Uh, not a lot of uh, thought that she can hang on. I, I think uh, very few people believe that, that, that she will be able to, but uh, it's going to be a, a big fight out there as well. But Cheryl, I, I want you to, to pull a thread here for me and that clearly there is a, a portion of the GOP in their support of President Trump that seems to really be downplaying what happened on January 6th. And that's that's playing out as we're watching this video footage, as we're understanding how close Vice then Vice President Pence was to being in physical danger from the mob that came into Congress. So how are you parsing out where the party itself is right now? You know, I think one of the most, frankly, troubling trends in this election are the number of election deniers who are winning Republican nominations across the country. And we actually saw that play out in Nevada this week. Um, Jim Marchant, who was an organizer of a network of election deniers, is now the Republican nominee for Secretary of State in Nevada. And, and that Secretary of State's role is so critical because it is the Secretary of State who supervises elections. And, you know, we, we are, are seeing this um, all across the country. So I think when you ask about pulling on a thread of, you know, sort of where the Republican Party is with denying the events of January 6th, I think we, are, we really have a very good um, example at the polls of, you know, in, in Pennsylvania, another candidate, their gubernatorial candidate, Doug Mastriano, is a very, very ardent defender of, of President Trump and of the big lie, the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen. Um, we saw in New Mexico this week, um, a Republican-led county commission refused to certify the results of this June primary election in its county, citing concerns about election fraud. And I think the troublesome thing is seeing how American confidence, Republicans are, are sort of sowing the seeds of distrust in the American electoral 
system. And that, that began with Donald Trump. It was put before the nation in full view on January 6th. And we are seeing it now play out in the candidates that many Republican voters in counties and states across the country are choosing to lead them. We'll hear more from you and our guests in just a moment. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. Molly, I wanted to just quickly circle back to some reporting you did recently. You spent some time with Marjorie Taylor Greene. What are you learning about where the GOP is right now? Yeah, thanks for uh, highlighting that piece of mine, which is published on Time.com this week. You know, as we look forward to the midterms and we think about most, almost everyone expects that the, the Republicans will take over the House of Representatives. So what is that going to mean? What are they going to do? And who is really going to be in charge? And uh, so I profiled Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene because they are the ringleaders of what I'm calling the MAGA squad. And they, despite their reputation as sort of, you know, gadflies or, or, or whatever you want to call them, uh, they really have been very strategic about building power within the House conference, uh, using outside power, actually modeling themselves on the, the left wing squad of, of AOC and her ilk uh, to try to maximize their leverage in the future House majority. Majority, uh, and to ensure that it uh, follows their vision, which is, you know, the sort of most hardcore uh, pro-Trump uh, vision for, for what Republicans should stand for. And uh, so, you know, whether or not uh, Kevin McCarthy gets to become the next Speaker of the House could very well hinge on uh, what this group uh, wants to do. Well, I want to quickly touch on gun legislation. It's been years since Congress passed a bipartisan agreement on that issue. But this week, a new proposal gained support from some key players like Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. At the same time, Senator John Cornyn of Texas, the lead Republican negotiator in this bipartisan group behind the proposal, Earlier this week, he said the framework will likely have to be slimmed down in order to pass. Chris, very quickly, just tell us where this this stands. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's important to understand how Congress works and makes deals. So, so over the past weekend, it was announced that a deal had been reached on gun legislation, which on its face is a pretty big deal. There's not been any major or even minor gun legislation since the passage of the 1994 assault weapons ban. Uh, John Cornyn, uh, Republican from Texas, and Chris Murphy, Democrat from uh, Connecticut were leading this, and there were 10 Republicans, which is the number they would need to uh, stop debate and come to a final vote, importantly, who were on this. The problem was that the legislation hadn't been written. Uh, they had agreed in principle, but there was no text to show to anyone. The process of doing that, I think, has um, shown that there is a very real possibility that this quote-unquote deal may not happen. Every day we get further from Uvalde, Texas, we saw this with Newtown, Connecticut, my, my home state, uh, in um, after the mass school shooting there. Every day we get further removed from the event, the mass school shootings, is the momentum to pass something becomes less urgent for uh the Senate and, and for Republicans in particular. So there are two issues to your question, uh, Jen. One is red flag laws. Uh, how are they funded in states? Uh, 19 states already have red flag laws. That, that is essentially a way to say, this is a troubled person. 
they are an immediate threat to themselves and others, we need to keep a gun out of their hands. 19 states have this. The question is, well, how do you fund this? Uh, uh, Tied into that is the fact that lots and lots of Republicans who were not signed on to this bipartisan compromise don't want red flag laws. The other thing is what's called the boyfriend loophole. It essentially deny denying firearms to unmarried partners who have been convicted of domestic violence. This has long been a loophole that gun control advocates have said, this is an easy fix. Uh, this would save lives. John Cornyn said that the deadline for an agreement was yesterday. <laughs> uh, because this is Congress and this is the Senate, that isn't a hard and fast deadline, but it it suggests that um, he wants to bring this to some sort of resolution. I will say, having studied and and covered gun debates in Congress before, the longer this proposal sits out there without legislative text and an agreement, the more likely it is to fail. Some news from the Federal Reserve this week. Chairman Jerome Powell announced a new plan to tackle high inflation. The current picture is plain to see. The labor market is extremely tight, and inflation is much too high. Against this backdrop, today the Federal Open Market Committee raised its policy interest rate by three-quarters of a percentage point and anticipates that ongoing increases in that rate will be appropriate. Molly, how soon should Americans expect to see changes to, to credit card rates, auto loans, and mortgages? Well, we have already seen the the, the mortgage rate jumping up after this uh unexpectedly large uh, move by the Fed. They're clearly feeling uh, a lot of urgency here as this inflation has continued to persist at at levels uh, that were higher than I think they originally anticipated, than many people originally anticipated, uh, and also for longer uh, than than many people anticipated. Uh, So the idea is, you know, you, you, you raise those interest rates uh, you make it harder for, for people to borrow money and make those big uh, discretionary purposes, purchases. Also, uh, potentially more rewarding for people to save money rather than spending it. All of this aimed at bringing down uh, that aggregate uh, demand, bringing down the sort of uh, red hot spending that has been fueling uh, all of the inflation across the economy. Now, and, and, but, but when you do that, you know, you cool down the economy. We already see the stock, stock market tumbling into bear market territory. So uh, another sort of immediate economic consequence of this. And, and then the fear is, uh, it, it, can you get it exactly right? Or do you risk going too far in the other direction uh, and tipping the country into a recession? And I think uh, for most American consumers, it's just the uncertainty of feeling sort of whipsawed by all of these uh, big changes in, in the economy uh, that, that, that leads to a lot of the pessimism that people are feeling. Well, President Biden addressed these economic concerns while speaking at the AFL-CIO Constitutional Convention on Wednesday. It's a meeting of the largest federation of unions in the country. Jobs are back, but prices are still too high. COVID is down, but gas prices are up. Our work isn't done. But here's the deal. America still has a choice to make. A choice between a government by the few, for the few, or a government for all of us. Democracy for all of us, an economy where all of us have a fair shot and a chance to earn our place in the economy. Now, the White House's own internal polling data found eight in 10 Americans believe the economy is in trouble and the president should be doing more to combat inflation. And we should note the UK and the European Union are also battling inflation rates above 8%. But Cheryl, how much power does the president have to do anything about inflation? 
you know, it's really the Fed's power, and he's not going to interfere interfere with the Fed. The press, if the president could wave a magic wand and address inflation, he would. He he can take steps to try to um, improve the supply chain, which is fueling inflation. And he did do one very notable um, thing this week. He he issued a warning to oil companies. He said that um, he wanted them to produce more, and this is you know to address the high price of oil and of gasoline. And he complained very pointedly that they were raising prices, uh, even at as they have record profits. Um, some Democrats would would like the president to do even more. Um, some are calling for a windfall profits tax on oil companies. That's not going to go over well with the um, with oil companies. Um, Boris Johnson, you mentioned the UK, Boris Johnson did uh, pass a windfall profits tax in England um, that he says will, you know, translate into more money into the public coffers, which will then translate into more money in the pockets of of citizens of the UK. Um, but the president is in a very, very tough position to answer your question. He's kind of hit the the trifecta. He's got inflation up, interest rates up, stock market going down. And despite what he said um, this week and the, the rosy picture that he is trying to paint, um, he knows that he has got to temper that with reality because Americans are seeing this when they go to the grocery store and they pay $6.50 for a loaf of bread or when they go to the gas pump and they pay $5 or in some cases in California more uh, for a gallon of gas. So um, he's he's got to acknowledge what Americans are feeling and experiencing. Well, let's move to some news many parents have been waiting for. The FDA authorized COVID vaccines for kids as young as six months old this morning. The move came after an FDA advisory panel voted to recommend regimens from Moderna and Pfizer earlier this week. Chris, how soon could these vaccines be available to parents? Uh, Almost immediately. And I think as uh, a parent of a nine and a 13-year-old, but someone who has many friends who have kids under five, I think this news will be hugely welcome. I think one of the most difficult things was over the last three-ish months, as almost almost the entire country has, I, I hesitate to say moved on, but sort of decided that they need to learn to live with COVID given the relatively decent vaccination rates in the country. Uh, I think the frustration, anger, and... and uh, disappointment among those with children under five has been palpable. Uh, Now, as we've seen, uh, uh, just because the vaccine is available does not mean we will see uptake of the vaccine among, you know, a large number uh, in this country. Uh, Those five and over who have been uh, children, five to 18, who have been able to and eligible to get the vaccine, there's still a relatively relatively small number who have done so. I, my two kids are vaccinated. I'll just say that, uh, and, and boosted in the case of my 13 year old. Um, so I think it is a sigh of relief for some, for others, it won't move the needle at all because they weren't particularly worried about COVID. They weren't planning to get their young person, uh, uh, uh vaccinated and it won't change much, which, 
you know, Jen, is in some ways a microcosm of where we are as a country as it relates to the vaccine. You know, some people viewed it as a, a life-saving uh, uh, treatment, which I would argue it is. Uh, others sort of, you know, snubbed their nose at it and said, we're not interested in, in doing that. It, it's become, I will say, unnecessarily politicized. I don't, I don't think the, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, yes, there are people who don't vaccinate their kids to MMR, but but it is it doesn't have the number of people saying, I'm not doing this. And, and I lay that blame in large part at the feet of uh, Donald Trump, who, yes, he did get vaccinated. He did urge people to get vaccinated, but he politicized this whole virus almost from the start. And I think we're reaping the, the unfortunate dividends of that now. Now, Cheryl, is this FDA emergency use authorization for both Pfizer and Moderna? Uh, the FDA voted uh, 21 to 0 in favor of the Moderna vaccine. We don't, um, the Pfizer vaccine is, uh, is, will be considered later. A um, couple of things to note. This vaccine for kids is two shots four weeks apart for kids ages six months through five years. And we still need to hear from the CDC. The CDC's expert advisors will meet on Saturday to discuss this vaccine. Um, once the CDC issues its recommendations for how this vaccine should be used, presumably they will recommend that it that it should be used. Um, the White House has said vaccinations could begin next week. They've already lined up. Um, they're working with pharmacies and and, and pediatricians uh, and and big health centers to line up shipments and get the machinery going for the kids' vaccination campaign. Well, and Cheryl, just give us a, a broad picture of where we are right now in this country when it comes to infection rates. I, I know this vaccine is, is good news for some parents, but where do we stand as, as a country? So where we stand as a country, I guess the bottom line is uh, coronavirus is not going away. We still have about 100,000 new infections reported each day. We know that number is actually uh, almost certainly an undercount because so many people are testing at home and those tests don't go reported. Um, the number has been steady for about the past month. Uh, the number of deaths has been declining, though, over time. Still, still pretty high, though, uh, as many as 300 uh, per day. But um, deaths, uh, you know, are, are keeping at that level. They're not shooting up. We're seeing different patterns in different parts of the country. In the Northeast and the Midwest, cases are declining. In the South and the West, places like Wyoming, um, cases are, are going up quite a bit uh, and hospitalizations are going up there. So I think the bottom line is we are all going to have to learn how to live with um, with COVID. And, you know, look, one note, Dr. Fauci got tested positive for COVID-19 this week. So even Dr. Fauci is not immune. Well, before we wrap up, I'd love to hear about a story you're following in the coming week. Briefly, Molly? 
Oh, boy. Uh, well, I think, you know, as we see the, the January 6th hearings uh, continue, it's going to be front and center, but it's been uh, so impressive to me how, how, how simply and uh, compellingly they've, they've laid out uh, the different uh, stages uh, that, that, that Chris described. And the next hearing, I think, is going to be especially fascinating as they look at the different efforts in different states uh, to, to overturn specific vote counts. Chris, quickly. I'm a political guy, so I'm continuing to look at the Donald Trump effect uh, in Republican primaries. Molly touched on it, but I think the overwhelming lesson here is Donald Trump is still the kingfish of the Republican Party. uh, And until proven otherwise, I think May, as soon as this summer or early fall, announce a, a third bid for president. That's Chris Saliza. He's a reporter and editor-at-large for CNN Politics. Molly Ball is the national political correspondent for Time. And Cheryl Gay Stolberg is a Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Thanks to you all. 1A's audio engineer and sound designer Mike Kidd is off today, and we're in the capable hands of Kellen Quigley. He gets technical assistance from Adrian Danhauser. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand, and Chris Castano is our digital editor. This is the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. You're listening to 1A. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup. Obviously expensive, you know, digital images. Well, people are taking this chance to get out while they can, but they know this could be a one-way journey. If the Russians take this territory, and they're getting closer all the time, these people may never be able to come back to their city and their homes. Here in the Donbass region right now, it looks like a losing battle. That was the BBC's Orla Guerin reporting from eastern Ukraine. The leaders of France, Germany, Italy, and Romania visited the capital, Kiev, this week. We'll hear what they had to say in a moment. Plus, news from China, the Middle East, and Rwanda for us to get to. So let's welcome our panel. Dave Lawler is world news editor for Axios. Dave, it's great to have you back. Great to be with you. Also with us, Jessica Donati from The Wall Street Journal. Jessica covers foreign affairs and national security. Jessica, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. And David Rennie is Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist. David, always great to have you. Hello. And on the line from Kiev is NPR's Greg Myrie. Greg, welcome back. Thank you, Jen. Good to be here. Greg, you've had a busy week with an opportunity to speak to the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. What did Ambassador Bridget Brink have to say about the war right now? Right. Um, She said, uh, get ready for a long, hard slog. She said it's going to be tough and grinding. Um, She just arrived a couple weeks ago. Uh, She's uh, overseeing an embassy that is uh, handling uh, in charge of oversight for billions and billions of dollars that the U.S. is putting into Ukraine. Uh, obviously, we hear about the military component of that, but it also goes for other things like helping the government pay its bills, helping with humanitarian needs, uh, helping with war crimes investigations. And it's a very limited staff here. But she said uh, the U.S. Is, is quite committed for the long haul here. Well, here's part of your interview with Ambassador Brink talking about Ukraine's determination to win. I just look again at the resilience of the Ukrainian people from the president to the 10-year-old girl that I met in Irpian who had to hide for two and a half months in a dark, cold, dirty basement with missiles flying and hitting all around her. And 
Her mom said they're going to stay and they're going to fight to the very end. We mentioned Kiev saw some high-profile visitors from Europe this week. Greg, tell us more about who came and what they had to say. Right. So it was the leaders of, of France, uh, President Macron, uh, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, uh, Mario Draghi, the Prime Minister of Italy. Uh, they took the train in because you can't fly. All the civilian airports are closed. And it was very interesting that these three came together. That obviously made it a pretty big visit in and of itself. But these are all people that uh, the Ukrainians have seen as too accommodating toward Russia, too soft. Uh, there's they, they're sort of partly with Ukraine, but they also seem a little sympathetic to to Russia in some ways. So it was significant that they all came. It was the first visit for each of them uh, to Ukraine. Um, And they said the things that Ukraine wanted to hear, that they're very supportive. They they went to a suburb of Kiev where the Russians reached in the the early days of the war and were accused of committing lots of atrocities. Uh, They said they were, were, were quite struck uh, by what they saw, that it was it was barbarism, uh, that there was evidence, uh, Macron said there was evidence that the Russians had committed massacres. So it, it really helped or sent a signal of, of greater unity that these three big European countries uh, sent their leaders here uh, and that they got along very well with uh, Vladimir Zelensky. They had a news conference for more than an hour afterwards, words all standing side by side, the Europe, other European leaders all in suits and ties, Zelensky in his olive t-shirt. Uh, but they were able to stand up there and answer questions for an hour and no, no clear uh, differences uh, in opinion. So they, they seem to, at least on the surface, have certainly patched things up. David, the EU now says it's ready to give Ukraine candidate status. What does that mean and how significant is it? So it's a big deal, but it doesn't mean that Ukraine is going to become a member of the EU for a decade at best and and maybe never. Remember, there are a whole bunch of, there's more than half a dozen countries uh, who are currently candidates, some of them for years, like Turkey, uh, countries like Albania. But it's an important step, and this would never have happened without the war. Ukraine would be by far the poorest country to join the EU if it did ever get in. It has serious problems with corruption, uh, with judiciary, Uh, all the problems that normally make it very difficult for a country to get in. So the fact that you had these big European leaders, as you say, France, Italy and Germany, all saying that they agree that uh, Ukraine should have immediate EU candidate states, they're actually joined by a fourth leader, the president of Romania uh, in Kyiv. That is sending a signal um, that this is about politics. This is about telling uh, Vladimir Putin that the idea that Ukraine is part of Russia that Europe has no business in Ukraine, that the biggest European leaders don't see it that way. And it was an incredibly strong statement we saw from the European Commission president, Ursula von der Leyen, who said, we all know that Ukrainians are ready to die for the European perspective. We want them to live with us the European dream. So this is all about the symbolism at the moment and holding out hope. But the Ukrainians know that this is going to be an incredibly slow, drawn out process. But it's a signal that Europe is saying this is our territory, this is Europe. And so Vladimir Putin has invaded part of Europe. And that's an incredibly strong signal. Uh, Jessica, back here, President Biden announced that the U.S. will send more military and humanitarian aid. What more do we know about this latest assistance? Right. Um, President Biden has announced that the U.S. is going to send another $1 billion in military um, assistance to Ukraine. This includes artillery, ammunition, coastal defense systems. But um, it is much less than what the Ukrainians have been hoping for. And Ukraine at the moment 
is finding itself at the losing end of a battle in the Luhansk region. Russia is advancing and they're saying uh, in Kiev that only a massive transfer of weapons is going to help. So uh, the outlook is that this isn't going to tip the scales on the battlefield. Um, it is also one of um, multiple announcements that we've seen from the US. But so far, um, according to a recent think tank report, the US has only delivered less than half of the military aid it has actually committed. So it could be a while before this aid shows up. Uh, along uh, with the US, other Western countries that have promised to Ukraine are in a similar position where they've promised heavy weapons and financial aid, but uh, much of the equipment promised hasn't arrived. Well, General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has defended the ongoing weapons and security aid to Ukraine. He said, quote, the numbers clearly favor the Russians. And speaking to reporters on Wednesday, laid out why he says the fight is so important. The international community is not allowing this unambiguous act of aggression by Russia to go unanswered. To do so, the risks to the world returning to an era when large, powerful countries can invade smaller countries at will, that is what the international community is up against. General Milley spoke to NPR this week, and he talked about Ukraine's quote-unquote moral advantage over their aggressors. Dave, how much does that matter when it comes to winning a war? Morale is certainly crucially important, and we've seen uh, the impact of that in the war. I mean, the the Ukrainians are in many ways fighting for their homes uh, and for their independence, uh, and many of the Russians, uh, at least from the the reports that were uh, coming out about potential desertions, uh, you know, some of them didn't know what they were fighting for, to be honest. And so that advantage has been on the Ukrainian side, but that doesn't completely erase the advantage that Russia has uh, in the Donbass region in terms of uh, heavy weaponry and in terms of artillery. Um, You know, the Ukrainians are crying out, as Jessica said, for more, uh, particularly artillery ammunition, which they're running through very quickly. They're also taking heavy losses in terms of personnel. I was in a meeting with the Ukrainian delegation that came to D.C. this week to plead for more weapons. Uh, And the head of that delegation, one of Zelensky's closest advisors, said they were now losing 200 to 500 soldiers uh, killed in action every day. Uh, Other estimates are lower than that. It could be that he was really trying to put pressure on the U.S. Uh, But it's clear that in the last few weeks, the losses that Ukraine has been sustaining have really climbed up. And they say in order to fight back, they need uh, more weaponry more quickly than it's been arriving in the country so far. Well, Greg, NATO met this week to discuss providing further aid to Ukraine. What's their plan and and do we know how and when this war might end? Well, we don't know how it's going to end. It's it's about four months in. Um, there's certainly signs that we're, we're headed toward a, a, a stalemate um, of sorts that neither side is in position to make a big advance, but that doesn't mean the war can't go on for a long time. And to the point about NATO and its weapons, there, NATO is sending additional weapons, but it does take time, uh, certainly from the Ukrainian perspective, much longer than they anticipated. But they made a really interesting point that they're talking about more and more now, which is a lot of the systems they had before the war were older Soviet-era systems. They're now burning through the ammunition in those systems, and there's no place to easily get large quantities of that outside of Russia. So Russia still makes that, obviously makes the, the ammunition it needs for its weapon systems. But if you have these legacy systems, there's not a lot of other places to get it. So the Ukrainians say, not only do we need NATO weapons, 
uh, but we're going to rely on them more and more in the future because that's also where we can get ammunition to restock. And they're, everybody is burning through uh, shells at an enormous rate. The Ukrainians say they're shooting off 5,000 shells or so a day. The Russians, they say, are shooting off 50,000 or so more shells a day. That's Greg Myrie. He's NPR's national security correspondent reporting from Kiev. Greg, we appreciate your time and insight. Thanks. My pleasure, Jen. Let's get to another story from the war in Eastern Europe. Two U.S. veterans from Alabama are reported missing in Ukraine. Dave, what more do we know about them and what might have happened? These are both uh, veterans of the U.S. military. Uh, They have been missing since earlier this month when they went out on what was supposed to be a reconnaissance mission. This is according to a member of their unit uh, who was not on this mission because he was injured and has been speaking to uh, the media since. Uh, They did not come back from that mission. It was actually the first mission that they had undertaken after uh, arriving in Ukraine and and joining up with this unit. Um, We have unconfirmed reports out of Russian media, including a photo that's again unconfirmed of them uh, having been captured in a uh, Russian truck and being held. But again, the State Department says they have not confirmed that image or the fact that these uh, two U.S. military veterans are in Ukrainian, or or, sorry, are in Russian captivity. Um, But their families do believe they've been captured. And then there's a third veteran of the U.S. military uh, that we learned more recently had traveled to Ukraine as a volunteer, and he was last heard from during a firefight with Russian troops. Uh, It's unclear exactly what happened to him, um, but again, he's also being considered missing in action. So that's three U.S. military veterans who joined up to volunteer with the Ukrainian military uh, and have now gone missing in Ukraine. And what has has the U.S. said about about these veterans and any responsibility the U.S. has toward them? So the State Department was asked first about uh, the two veterans from Alabama. They said they have not uh, seen any credible evidence that they're being held by the Russians, but if they do, they will reach out to Russia. They're in touch with the Red Cross. They're in touch with uh, other U.S. allies who have uh, soldiers who've decided to go over uh, to Ukraine. So they say that they're working this hard uh, and they'll continue to update the families. Uh, the families have said that they're in close touch with the U.S. government. Um, so, uh, you know, at least one of the the men's uh, wives said that um, she was, you know, had been in daily contact with the U.S. government since he'd been missing. So they are, you know, uh, on top of this, but they're not currently, at least as of yesterday, uh, in any sort of talks with the Russians about trying to free uh, these two men, if indeed they have been captured by the Russians. Well, let's turn next to Saudi Arabia. President Biden made it official this week. He will make his first trip to the Middle East and meet with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. That trip is set for next month. The president will also visit Israel and the occupied West Bank. This has been a controversial move for Biden. Even before the trip was confirmed, House Democrats wrote a letter to the president citing concerns. Jessica, what's the backstory here? Well, uh, starting with the uh, campaign uh, when Trump was president, uh, Biden promised to treat Saudi Arabia as the pariah state that it was, particularly for 
the assassination of the uh, journalist Jamal Khashoggi. So uh, the fact that now he's um, basically going over to Saudi Arabia cap in hand uh, to try and get their help uh, bringing gas prices down, which is not the stated reason of the trip, but the reason that um, everybody has interpreted <laughs> to be the, the real reason, um, looks bad because it breaks a campaign promise. And many human rights groups, and along with Khashoggi's family, are saying that this breaks a promise uh, to hold human rights um, in high regard when it comes to foreign policy. Well, John Kirby spoke to CNN this week. He's the National Security Council coordinator for strategic communications at the White House. And here he's addressing concerns about Saudi Arabia, specifically those raised by family members of victims of 9-11, and whether President Biden will address them with the crown prince. He continues to do everything he can to support uh, the families of the victims of 9-11. He knows what a devastating grief that they still endure, uh, and he will not shy away from representing them and their concerns. So specifically, he will mention those concerns? I'm not going to get ahead of specific things the president will or won't say in, in a given room on a trip that, uh, that hasn't happened yet. But I can tell you that, that he keeps them foremost, their concerns, uh, their issues, their grief, their suffering foremost in his mind and in his heart. And he will never shy away from representing that. Again, John Kirby on CNN. Dave, up until this point, how has President Biden handled U.S.-Saudi relations? And what are the issues raised about 9-11 in particular? Sure. So uh, Biden came into office. Uh, he very quickly released a an intelligence report that uh, essentially blamed Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, He said that he was going to withdraw U.S. support for the Saudi war effort in Yemen. Uh, So he tried to send signals early on that this was not business as usual with the Saudis. There have been some rumblings that actually, uh, you know, the Saudis did not, you know, and as one might expect, take the snub particularly well, uh, that some things they were trying to do regionally were more difficult because of strained relations with the Saudis. And then we get to this point where gas prices are the number one political concern for the White House and Saudi Arabia is the single biggest player who could to pump more oil and bring those prices down. The White House has been trying to work with the Saudis behind the scenes to try to get them to pump more oil. That has not really yielded much success. Uh, they also say that part of the reason for this trip is because they want to work on uh, bringing relations between Israel and the Gulf states, of course, Saudi Arabia included, closer together. So that's another stated reason for this trip. Um, You know, I I think that the White House is still quite bashful about this. They did a briefing call earlier this week in which uh, they said Biden would meet with his Saudi hosts. And then uh, reporters had to follow up and say, when you say Saudi hosts, are you talking about uh, Mohammed bin Salman? And they said, well, you know, yeah, we think he'll see the crown prince. And then, of course, the Saudis came out with a statement saying quite clearly that Biden and the crown prince would be meeting. So this is obviously sensitive terrain, uh, but it's a trip that they've obviously decided they have to uh, make if they want to repair the relationship uh, in, you know, oil prices, as Jessica said, are the number one issue uh, that's likely to loom over this trip. Well, a day after President Biden announced his trip to Saudi Arabia, a street in front of the Saudi embassy in Washington, D.C., was renamed Jamal Khashoggi Way. Khashoggi, again, was a U.S. resident and journalist who was murdered in Istanbul in 2018. U.S. intelligence says Khashoggi was murdered by Saudi agents at the order of Mohammed bin Salman.
Let's turn to a new energy deal in the Middle East. The EU is trying to find ways to deal with an energy crisis after cutting off Russian oil and gas. On Wednesday, Egypt, Israel, and the European Union signed a gas deal that would send Israeli gas to the EU through a pipeline in Egypt. David, how significant is this deal? Look, the you know the, the oil and and hydrocarbons is basically an example of, of values and interests in direct collision. And you know there are plenty of places in the world uh, where if you're a Western democracy, particularly America, you you've you've got problems with the Venezuelans, with the Russians, uh, with the Saudis, uh, other big oil producers like Iran when it's not sanctioned. The problem is you can't have a fight with all of them at the same time. And if you remember, there's been tremendous pressure from, say, the Americans onto the Europeans to buy less oil and gas from Russia because they say that pours billions into Putin's coffers. Well, if the Europeans, among others, are going to buy less oil and gas from Russia, they're going to have to get it from somewhere else. And unfortunately for uh, people who are upset about Middle East uh, politics, a big part of that is going to come from uh, the Middle East. And so you're seeing this energy map you know, even as people talk a good game about a green transition, how we're not going to be dependent on hydrocarbons in the future, we're going to get all of our energy from renewable energy. We are not at that kind of utopia yet. And as for so many sort of more than a century uh, since we started investing, you know, inventing the machines that used oil to move around, uh, we are basically forced to buy it from countries that do not always share our values. And I think that's what you're seeing. And it's you can't untangle Ukraine, uh, Russia. Iran, the Middle East, uh, Venezuela, all of these uh, all of these energy suppliers are tied together by the fact that Western governments are facing r- soaring inflation and very angry customers at the pump, not just in America, but in across the world as energy prices soar. So it's values and interests. And on, on this one, people are playing for interests. Well, also this week, the European Union announced it'll unfreeze hundreds of millions of euros in aid to Palestinians. For many years now, the European Union has been supporting Palestine and the Palestinian people. And as Team Europe, we are the largest donor in Palestine with around 600 million euros per year. And indeed, now I am very glad to announce that the EU funds for 2021 can be dispersed rapidly. All the difficulties are uh, gone. We have made clear that the disbursement will take place. So I'm happy to announce that here today together with you. That was President of the EU Commission Ursula von der Leyen speaking in the West Bank on Tuesday. Jessica, explain a little bit more about what's happening here. Sure. Well, the uh, the aid package, which was valued at around uh, 200 million euros, is used to pay the salaries and the pensions of uh, civil servants in the West Bank. And uh, what happened was a sort of dispute with, within the uh, European Union over the content of textbooks in Palestine uh, after a... Um, report by an institute found that uh, some of the textbooks depicted Israel in an overly uh, violent way, in a deceitful way. Um, It concluded that these textbooks should be um, updated to be more balanced. And this is a long, uh, ongoing debate um, that has gone on for years over uh, education in Palestine. But in the end, uh, the objection by the commission um, didn't manage to pass a majority in the EU. And so um, these funds have finally been released. Let's move now to China, where the country's defense minister is saying they'll fight at all costs to stop Taiwanese independence. Chinese President Xi Jinping also signed legal orders allowing trial military operations outside China's borders. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin spoke about these moves this week in Singapore. We'll also stand by our friends as they uphold their rights. And that's especially important 
as a PRC adopts a more coercive and aggressive approach to its territorial claims. Dave, what can you tell us about relations between China and Taiwan right now? Well, for one thing, there were actually two high-level conversations uh, between China and the United States over the last week, uh, which is, you know, a, a sort of break from the, the relative uh, lack of communication. Uh, Lloyd Austin, who uh, we just heard, met with his Chinese counterpart, uh, and Jake Sullivan went to Luxembourg and met with China's top diplomat for four and a half hours to discuss issues, including Taiwan. Obviously, uh, China has not been happy about the things the Biden administration, particularly President Biden himself, who has said the U.S. is committed to defend Taiwan. Uh, that is viewed as a highly provocative statement by the Chinese side. Uh, and as Lloyd Austin just said, they view uh, China's statements and moves around Taiwan as highly provocative. Um, you know, the context here is that with the war happening in Ukraine, Russia moving into Ukraine, the other big uh, flashpoint that everybody has been worried about, including the Biden administration, is the idea of China potentially moving into Taiwan and trying to take the island under its control by force. Um, you know, uh, David Rennie probably knows better than me whether we're moving closer to that scenario, uh, whether these statements and moves by China should be read uh, as a path potentially toward military confrontation over Taiwan. But that's certainly uh, in the background of what we just heard Lloyd Austin saying about provocative moves uh, from Beijing. David, jump in here. So I think that there's there's nothing very new about the Chinese taking the view that they will do what it takes to stop Taiwan, either declaring independence or feeling emboldened by kind of American promises that it's it can defy China. That is the sort of the, the, the rhetoric from China for a very long time. What is new and what is very worrying is that the Chinese have been hammering home in every meeting they have with any senior American that they think that America is destabilizing that fragile status quo that has kept the peace between these two nuclear armed superpowers for decades. And although American officials in the Biden administration will say, no, no, China is getting this wrong. We are just trying to preserve the status quo by making sure that the Chinese military understands that it can't take Taiwan easily or hopefully at all in the American view. So America thinks that the more it talks about sending the right weapons to Taiwan, training Taiwanese troops, uh, having higher level but still non-official contacts with Taiwan, America's view is this is all about deterring the Chinese and making it clear that China would pay a terrible price if it tried to take this democratic island of 24 million people back by force. China hears all of those messages as part of a bigger threatening story of America somehow deciding that China's rise must be stopped and that America is somehow bent on using its last gasp of its strength as the top dog to try and keep China down and stop China getting to the top place or you know equal ranking in world affairs. And so this drumbeat of warnings from China, I think we should take seriously because I think it does reflect a real paranoia here in Beijing, that somehow America is not really sincere when it says it doesn't support Taiwan independence and wouldn't go to war. And so there's a real sense of danger. Is there going to be a war kind of right now? You don't hear that drumbeat. Right now we're talking about COVID and we're talking about a massive political meeting where Xi Jinping, the Supreme Leader here, is due to get a third term as Communist Party chief at the end of the year. And so I don't think we're going to see a war break out anytime soon. It's not like Vladimir Putin, you know, who spent months building up troops on the border with Ukraine and people really had a very doomy sense that there might be an invasion. That is not the mood here in China. Where we are is Chinese paranoia about American intentions and really unprecedentedly shrill warnings from the Chinese to America to knock it off. 
when it comes to Taiwan. Well, well China's uh, Xi Jinping also voiced his support for Russian President Vladimir Putin during a call this week. Uh, the two leaders emphasized that their relationship is at an all-time high, and that's according to a Kremlin recap of the call. But David, how much of that coziness is about what the leaders actually think of each other versus reinforcing that message you're talking about that they want to send to America and the West? It's really fascinating. So if you're talking about the Chinese kind of machine, the Communist Party machine and their and their military and security establishment, do they really care about Ukraine? No, they don't. Do they really love Russia very much? Not much. They think of Russia as a, as a sort of declining power that's useful to buy oil and gas from. So for them, the war with Ukraine is all about seeing if they can weaken the West, if they can show that Western unity isn't going to last, and that sanctions imposed by the West will not work to break Russia. And that's because they're thinking about Taiwan and whether the West could sanction China if they ever tried anything on Taiwan. That's the kind of the machine. Xi Jinping does seem to have a strange personal bond uh, with Vladimir Putin. They keep calling each other on Xi's birthday. It was this latest call was for the 69th birthday of Xi Jinping. And they really, these two strong men who hate America, seem to see the world very much in the same way. So there is a kind of unique bond there. On Wednesday, a controversial plan by the British government to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda came to a dramatic stop. Minutes before the first plane was due to take off with asylum seekers on board, a court order grounded the flight. Priti Patel is the British minister in charge of the deportation plan. This government will not be deterred from doing the right thing. We will not be put off by the inevitable legal last-minute challenges. We will not stand idly by and let organised crime gangs, who are despicable in their nature and their conduct, evil people, treat human beings as cargo. Still, opposition to the policy has been growing. Yvette Cooper from the UK's Labour Party had this to say to Ms. Patel in the House of Commons on Wednesday. Our country is better than this. We have a long tradition of hard work and stepping up to tackle problems, not to offload them, to tackle the criminal gangs who put lives at risk and to do right by refugees. That is what she should be doing now and not this shambles that is putting our country to shame. Dave, give us some context here. Migrants are paying people to try and smuggle them across the English Channel. How was Rwanda connected? Right. So basically, uh, this number of people arriving on small boats in the UK has risen quite significantly. There's been a lot of political pressure on the government, which you'll remember took Britain out of the EU in part on this idea of taking back control of Britain's borders. Um, You know, there has been... uh, a real pressure on them to come to some sort of solution not to allow uh, growing numbers of people to enter the country um, illegally, basically, as they as they see it. So they came up with this quite unorthodox solution, which is when people arrive in the UK, they will be put on flights to Rwanda where their applications for asylum will be processed. But not only will they apply for asylum there, if they get asylum, they will remain in Rwanda. Uh, This policy has come under immense scrutiny from human rights groups, uh, from many in the UK. Uh, Reportedly, Prince Charles is not happy about the policy either. Uh, Rwanda, uh, for its part, is getting $150 million up front uh, in order to implement this policy uh, and has pushed back a bit on the criticism that, you know, this is not a country that can uh, safely handle uh, refugees. Of course, there are concerns about human rights in Rwanda as well. It's not uh, a country that 
you know, is known necessarily as a welcoming place uh, for uh, migrants from all around the world. So this is quite, uh, you know, a, a the, they they created this policy that was always going to lead uh, to legal challenges to all sorts of complications. And just as they were about to implement the first uh, flight to Rwanda, there was a legal intervention and now things are on hold, but the government says they're still going to keep trying to implement this policy. David, give us some more insight into what's at the heart of the pushback against this plan. So, I mean, in technical terms, as as Dave says, there were always going to be legal challenges because, remember, these are often asylum seekers. And in fact, many of them have perfectly well-founded grounds for asylum. They come from the world's most dangerous places. They're fleeing genuine persecution. So they meet the rules of the, the UN Convention on Refugees that Britain was a, a founding drafting member of. And in fact, three quarters of the people who sought asylum in the UK uh, over the past year were granted asylum eventually. So these are not, you know, just random uh, sort of economic migrants. These are asylum seekers. So it is, as Dave says, very shocking that they should be pushed off to Rwanda, a country that Britain used to criticize for human rights abuses not that long ago. And there have been these legal challenges, uh, particularly the, the, the actual reason the plane didn't take off this week is because the European Court of Human Rights, which is not part of the European Union, it's linked to another European organization, an older one that Britain still remains a member of, blocked it on legal grounds. I think we need to be cynical because this is Boris Johnson's government and he is an extraordinarily cynical man uh, with extraordinarily cynical ministers. They probably knew that this was going to happen. Uh, their own civil servants warned them that this policy was probably unworkable and that lawyers would get in the way. But that suits them because you've got these, it was 28,000 people came across in small boats last year. Tory voters, Boris Johnson's voters hate that. They want to be told something can be done. And if lawyers and above all European lawyers and Prince Charles and the Archbishop of Canterbury, all these kind of hoity-toity elites say, oh, that's so mean and so wicked. If you're a tabloid reading foreigner disliking Boris Johnson supporter, you say, well, then Boris is, has got the right enemies. Look at these posh idiots telling us we can't send these people to Africa. And so to have this fight actually suits Boris Johnson down to the ground. So, Jessica, where does this go from here? I think um, there's still uh, legal steps that can be taken. Um, the, US, the UK government has promised to continue. Um, the Home Secretary, as, as you heard, said that the preparation for the next flight starts immediately. And uh, as we can see, I mean, it has worked in other countries. If you remember, uh, the US had a policy of sending um, refu uh, uh, asylum seekers back uh, to uh, poorer Latin American countries where they were to wait for their asylum claims to be processed. Australia has done a, a similar thing, sending uh, ref refugees to uh, Papua New Guinea to wait. So um, it's not a particularly original idea. Uh, and I think that the legal fight uh, you know, is going to play out in the months ahead. Well, let's turn next to Brussels and news that the European Union is taking the UK to court. Yes, it concerns Brexit and something called the Northern Ireland Protocol. Here's the EU's Brexit Commissioner, Maros Sekovic. Let there be no doubt. There is no legal nor political justification whatsoever for unilaterally changing an international agreement. So let's call it a spade a spade. This is illegal. Again, that's EU's Brexit Commissioner Maros Sefcovic. David, we know Brexit can be incredibly complex, but what happened this week and, and why does it matter? So I'll try and keep it simple. So before Brexit, when Britain was still a member of the European Union, one of the things that the EU membership of Britain and Ireland solved was how to share the island, the island 
of Ireland, because your listeners will realize the south of Ireland is a country, the Republic of Ireland. The north of that island is Northern Ireland, part of the United Kingdom. And as long as everyone was a member of the European Union, they had tremendous amounts of trade within the island between uh, British-run Northern Ireland and the separate country of Southern Ireland, and then tremendous amounts of trade across the Irish Sea with the UK. Brexit wrecked all of that because you had to decide, was Northern Ireland going to lose its open border with no customs checks with the south of Ireland that it does so much business with? But then was it going to be in a different status uh, to the rest of the UK? So they did this compromise, this very messy compromise, where this one bit of the UK, Northern Ireland, is still in the sort of customs rules of the European Union so that it can trade freely without a border, cutting the island of Ireland in two. But that leaves the Northern Irish, who've got some very powerful parties who don't want to be part of Ireland, who want to stay part of Britain, that leaves them feeling that they are separate from Britain. And now you have customs checks, kind of checking things like food that gets exported from England or Scotland to Ireland. There's now effectively a border down the middle of the Irish Sea, and that is politically very unpalatable to at least some of the pro-British politicians in Northern Ireland who have basically refused to rejoin the Northern Irish regional government until that is changed. Unfortunately, this was the deal that Boris Johnson did to get Brexit. And now the British government has not just said they want to suspend the rules or negotiate. They're passing a law in the British Parliament, has not yet happened yet, which would basically just kind of break the deal that Britain struck. So a unilateral breaking of a legal deal with the European Union. It's brinksmanship. It's how Boris Johnson and his government role is designed to fix one of the many insoluble problems created by Brexit. And as you heard, the Europeans are in no, made, no mood to play nice. But before we move on, tributes continue to pour in for the British journalist Dom Phillips and Indigenous rights leader Bruno Pereira. They disappeared in the Amazon two weeks ago. Police on Wednesday said they'd recovered human remains from a grave in the jungle. Police were led to the site by a fisherman who confessed to killing the two men. Both were committed to bringing to the world's attention the state of the rainforest and Brazil's indigenous communities. Well, let's end with a story that started in 1707. And if lawmakers get their way, they want voters to bring it to an end in 2024. Scotland's first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, published a paper this week laying out what her country would look like outside the United Kingdom. In 2014, the Scots voted no in a referendum that would have brought an end to a union signed into law by Queen Anne. Nicola Sturgeon says it's time for another vote. There have been many changes since the referendum in 2014. In many ways, the world is a different place. The UK is certainly a very different place. In fact, I think if we could turn the clock back and people in 2014 could have foreseen the path that the UK would have taken out of the European Union, Boris Johnson as Prime Minister, then Scotland undoubtedly would have voted yes back then. So, Dave, times have changed, but have they changed enough for Scots to vote yes this time? Well, unfortunately for Nicola Sturgeon, at the moment, uh, Boris Johnson is standing in between her and actually putting this to a vote. Um, In 2014, the uh, then government, led by David Cameron, uh, allowed a Scottish independence referendum. As you mentioned, Uh, the no side won that by a 55 to 45 margin. And as Nicola Sturgeon mentioned, since then, you've had Brexit, uh, which Scots Uh, overwhelmingly opposed. You have Boris Johnson uh, in power, who is not popular 
in Scotland. Uh, there is a general uh, sentiment inside Scotland uh, that they would that voters would like to be part of the EU. But does that mean that they would vote this time uh, to leave if they were granted an opportunity to vote in a referendum? Uh, polls it looks pretty close, uh, but the last poll I saw still had the uh, side of remaining inside the UK narrowly ahead. Of course, Nicola Sturgeon uh, says that they would win it if they get the vote, and she did say that she's going to address the Scottish Parliament about a path to a referendum, a legal path that doesn't run through Westminster and through Boris Johnson. It's unclear if that's workable, uh, but she's under a lot of pressure from her nationalist base uh, and her fellow politicians on the pro-independence side uh, to do something about independence uh, at the moment. Jessica, what would this mean for Scotland if they're able to move forward and if people said, yes, we want to be independent? I mean, one of the things that uh, Scotland is hoping to be able to achieve uh, if it does leave the UK and rejoin the EU is solve some of the problems that all countries are seeing to a certain extent with high inflation, with economic growth slowing down. And so that is their long term goal. But um, as Dave was saying earlier, the UK uh, Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson has said you can't ask uh, the Scots to vote on something every few years. It's not fair. They've already stated their will and just trying to seize on this moment to distract attention from the domestic problems um, is not going to work. So uh, I think we have to wait and see how it plays out. I mean, David, if First Minister Sturgeon finds a legal pathway forward, what does this mean for the UK? It's another uh, incredibly complicated headache to a country that's, you know, done this very dramatic thing of Brexit. So the politics uh, of voting to leave have definitely been improved, if you're Nicola Sturgeon, uh, by Brexit, because, as as Dave and Jessica say, uh, most Scots would like to be part of the European Union. The problem is that the economics have just got even worse. It was always the economics that was the biggest reason why Scots eventually voted no in 2014. They've got problems that, that basically they are subsidised by transfers of money from the central government in London. Uh, where would that money come from now that North Sea oil has basically run out? Uh, there's the problem of what currency they would use. Would they share the pound with the British? And and then who would set the interest rates? Would it be the Bank of England? How would that work? There's the problem that who would get their share of their debts uh, if they left? All of those problems still exist. But add a new one that Nicola Sturgeon did have to acknowledge, even as she announced this kind of sunlit uplands of an independent Scotland, which is that Brexit complicates everything. Because if the Scots leave and join the EU, and that would certainly, I think, be part of the deal for almost every Scot who wants to vote yes, would be to then rejoin the EU. Where do you put the border? You'd have an, a Scotland in the European Union with a, a England and Wales that is not in the European Union. Do you put a customs border across uh, the UK, across the island of Britain? And remember that trade with the rest of the UK is about 60% of Scottish trade. Trade with the rest of the European Union is about 20% of Scottish trade. So they are economically completely bound into the rest of the English, Welsh, British economy. And so it's a kind of head versus heart problem that I think the head is more offended than ever. Dave is right that if you wanted to grow a prime minister in a test tube to annoy Scots, you would come up with a kind of posh uh, sort of ramshackle Englishman like Boris Johnson. They really loathe him up there. But the heart is absolutely in, in you know, wanting to leave and, 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 and the EU part is also part of that. But the head looks at all the problems, including where you put the border, all of those currency economic issues, and it's going to be a real mess. Well, in the minute or so we have left here, I'd love to hear from each of you a story you're following or a story you think didn't get enough attention this week. Jessica, I'll come to you first. 
Well, I can tell you I've been following Afghanistan closely. I just went, came back from a trip there uh, last week where the uh, economic devastation by the withdrawal of troops and um, uh, foreign aid has really caused the country to tip towards starvation. Many people are out of work. And uh, one story I published this week that... Um, you may have missed was about how the Afghan political elite in the years before the government fell uh, started buying up properties uh, in places like Washington DC and the beach in California and Dubai and in Turkey preparing houses for themselves uh, to flee to if the uh, government fell. So when you look at the uh, fallen President Ghani's government and their top people, all of them now are living comfortable lives overseas. Dave, briefly from you. Uh, so there's a runoff in Colombia this weekend for the presidency. Um, you have uh, a leftist candidate who would be the first left-wing president of Colombia running against a populist in sort of the Trump mold um, who's, you know, sort of a, a burn-everything-down uh, anti-establishment candidate. Uh, it should be a really interesting election, and either way, um, you know, the political status quo in Colombia is, is going to be thrown out. David, you get the last word here briefly. Uh, food prices in a whole bunch of the world, energy prices and food prices are completely unaffordable. And that is going to be a major destabilizer this year. That's David Rennie. He's Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist. Also with us this week, Dave Lawler, World News Editor for Axios, and Jessica Donati, Foreign Affairs Reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Dave, David, Jessica, thanks for being with us. One A's managing producer is Paige Osborne. Our audio engineer and sound designer, Mike Kidd, is off today, and we're in the capable hands of Kellen Quigley. He gets technical assistance from Adrian Danhauser. Barban Guiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. This is One A.